favorite 30 minutes of my entire week. It's been such a joy these months to, to bring the word to you all. And I'll be both happy and desperately sad to have it come to an end. So anyway, we are in Genesis chapter 47. We looked through verse 6 the last time, and I want to look at just a few verses from 7 to 12. Not many verses, but there's a, uh, I think, a rather profound meeting, and I want to uh, take a look at that and see what it might have to, uh, what it says maybe for us, perhaps. So Genesis, the 47th chapter, verses 7 through 12. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the years, the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their descendants. Oh Lord God, you are always at work, and you are carrying out your will. You are blessing your people. You are providing for us. We have an inheritance. We have seen your glory in Jesus, and we are your children in his name. We are amazingly, incredibly blessed. Lord, we have been delivered from sin, delivered from our enemies. We uh, we are no longer worldly people. We are strangers and aliens. We are pilgrims heading to the celestial city, to the eternal land, the eternal uh, place of glory where we will dwell with you, you will dwell with us, and what an incredible gospel that is. So let us be pilgrims. Let us seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, O God. Give us ears to hear your word this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name this morning. Well, at this time, the move to Goshen is complete. Uh, Jacob and his family are settled in the land that will be their home for 400 years. I don't know if they knew that, but they should have because the Lord had spoken of that way back in Genesis, the 15th chapter. Now, perhaps you recall that Pharaoh had granted permission for Jacob's family to settle in this particular piece of land in the property of Egypt, the land of Goshen. But they had done so, they had negotiated this, if you will, through representatives, Pharaoh and Jacob, the two men, had not yet met face to face. Well, that happens in our text this morning. And I believe, as I read it, it's sort of a fascinating reading. These men are both extraordinary men. They are arguably the two most extraordinary men on earth of that day. And yet they could not have been more different, Jacob and Pharaoh. Think about Pharaoh to begin with. Of course, he 
was a ruler. He ruled over a vast land. He commanded great power. He had a mighty army, army at his disposal to protect his borders and to expand his borders and to conquer his enemies. He had many servants to wait on him. He needed to do nothing for himself. He just had to call to his servants. He had many women, no doubt, to please him. His life was one of luxury and ease. And he had ships that traveled to other nations to bring back all the goods and various products that Egypt needed to live and to prosper. And he himself lived, of course, in the opulence of a grand palace, which was filled with gold and silver and precious metals and gems of every kind. Uh, And not incidentally, Pharaoh himself was seen as a god and not as an ordinary person like, like you and me. There was indeed no man quite like Pharaoh in those days. And so, in many ways, the man who came to meet him, Jacob, was, well, he was an extraordinary man too, but he was most unlike Pharaoh. He was hardly poor, but yet his wealth was mostly in animals. He didn't have a grand palace. He had no ships. He had no army. He had no harem. He was a a simple man, and he had a simple life. And he was now an old man, 130 years, he testifies. He hadn't even attained, it's true, to the age of his fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And his life was filled with trouble and difficulty and struggle and moving. It was not an easy life. And he had been without his beloved son for over 20 years, who, ironically, had been serving Pharaoh. And he recently had to relocate due to the devastating famine. And now he was basically a a renter, a tenant, a temporary dweller in Pharaoh's land. And so when Jacob came out to meet Pharaoh... I suppose that he would have come, no doubt, in my own mind anyway, in his plain shepherd's clothing, probably still smelling of sheep and of goats. Maybe he cleaned up. I don't know. But this simple man came into the grandeur, the, the, the vastness and the glory, as it were, of, of Pharaoh's palace, the best of the best, the most beautiful room that probably existed in that day. And he stood before the most powerful ruler on earth who was arrayed in all of his garments of glory. This is how he picture it. Think about that in your own imagination. The simple shepherd meeting the greatest king of that day. What, what would Jacob have thought? Would he have been intimidated? Would he have been frightened, maybe jealous, maybe overwhelmed? Well, notice in this particular meeting, this fascinating meeting, it was Jacob who blessed Pharaoh. And not once, but twice, going in and and going out. So here's the surprise. In blessing Pharaoh, it's revealed that the greater of the two was Jacob, not Pharaoh. 
Why do I say that? Well, if you remember back in Genesis, the 14th chapter, Melchizedek, who was called the king of Salem and priest of God Most High, remember he met Abraham, no one else but Abraham. When Abraham was returning with the spoils after he had had military victory over certain kings who had attacked Sodom, and Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. Now that's described in the Old Testament, but the author of Hebrews makes a big deal of this. And he says, the author of Hebrews does, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. His argument, the author of uh, Hebrews is, that the blessing and the tie shows that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. But of course, the author's application to that and his point is that this is regarding Christ, that the priesthood of Jesus, because Jesus, he argues, is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, because Jesus was of the tribe of Judah, not of Levi, and Jesus was a priest, but a priest after the order of Melchizedek, so Jesus is greater than the Levites, greater than the priesthood of Aaron. And so applying that principle, the lesser is blessed by the greater, or the inferior is blessed by the superior to Jacob and Pharaoh, it becomes clear that Jacob, the shepherd, is superior to Pharaoh, the king. Yet how can this be? If Pharaoh was, so to speak, the king of kings, the greatest king of the world, was because the nation of Israel is greater than the nation of Egypt. Remember the statue. I'm hoping you are well acquainted with your Old Testament and you read your Bibles consistently. You should be reading through Scripture every day and every week and become increasingly acquainted with the Word of God. And so there was a a statue described. It was King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel, the second chapter. And it was described as a, a mighty and exceeding seemingly bright statue. It says its appearance was frightening, and it really troubled the king. And it's revealed that there was a stone that struck that great image, and the stone itself became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And that reveals, according to Daniel, that God will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. I think the application for us is, should be rather obvious and plain. The world, as we walk about and live in this world, the, the institutions of this world, the, the elites, they uh, present themselves as great and mighty. Uh, we might enjoy going into Atlanta or the great cities of, of this country or the great cities of this world. And they are amazing. They are boastful and proud. They have tall buildings and beautiful parks. Atlanta is this wonderful green city with its gorgeous parks, great halls, theaters, lights, and fountains. And the powerful people of the world and the elites and the wealthy, they present themselves as as gods almost and rulers of, of the little people. 
as those who have a right to, to run the world and dictate things according to their own ways. And perhaps we as Christians are, are maybe at times embarrassed by our, our little gatherings and our sort of incidental homes and, and ordinary buildings. You know, we are simple people. There's nothing great about us, whoever we are. We're plain people, right? And we might think, come on, we're 80, 90 people. What can we do? We don't have much. We have no power. We have no wealth. What can we do? You know, what do we have to offer? And the world's celebrities, they, they, strut, they strut about like peacocks, right, showing off their glory. Follow me. Look at me. Look how great I am. And we may think, ooh, just... I'm not like that. I'm just a little person. I have no glory. I'm just insignificant. Or maybe we become envious and perhaps try to copy them. And sometimes Christians try to compete on their own turf by bringing out our own stars, our own celebrities who profess to follow Christ. Or we build our own grand palaces, right? The... the uh, What's the palace called in California? The Silver Palace or the, not the, it's, anyway, we have these great church buildings that are meant to impress the community and maybe the world to show that, hey, we are also great. We are also amazing. But see, Jacob wasn't intimidated by Pharaoh. Jacob wasn't overwhelmed by this vast, gorgeous palace. He wasn't threatened by, by Pharaoh's power. Nor did he try to emulate Pharaoh or try to compete in Pharaoh's contest of who has the bigger house. He came as the man of God that he is, secure in the grace and promise of God. And he blessed Pharaoh, the greater blessing the lesser. I don't believe Jacob cared a whit about what Pharaoh had but Pharaoh should have cared a great deal about what Jacob had. Hebrews, again, the book of Hebrews speaks of Moses and says, by faith Moses, and you remember Moses was one who grew up in the, in the palace of the Pharaoh, another Pharaoh. But when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And so, beloved, the city of God is greater than the city of man, not because it has more of what the city of man has, but because clearly it, it doesn't. I'm sure you don't want to compare financial portfolios with Warren Buffett or Bill Gates or their like. You don't want to try to duplicate the, the homes and properties of the rich and famous athletes and, and politicians and movie stars. You can't compete with them on, on their turf. Nor should you want to. Nor should you want to. Jerusalem is qualitatively superior to Babylon. Because Babylon was built by man. 
But who is the architect and builder of the Jerusalem to come? God Himself. God Himself is that builder. What we have is far greater than what we have because we have a true treasure. We have an eternal treasure. We have a treasure in heaven, secure in heaven. It's called an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Another man who gave testimony before kings was many years later was the Apostle Paul. And perhaps you recall in Acts 26, Paul stood before two kings of that day, before Festus and before Herod Agrippa. And before those kings, he was required to make his defense against the accusations of the Jews. They were most upset with Paul and thought he was uh, definitely worthy of of a crime and, and probably death. And so he made his accusation before these kings. And as he was speaking, making his uh, defense, it's like Festus couldn't believe what he was saying. And he's like, Paul, you're, you're, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're a lunatic. No, said Paul. I am speaking true and, and rational words. Nothing but what the prophets and Moses had foretold. Things which King Agrippa had heard, things which he should have known, things which he should have believed. And so Herod Agrippa, perhaps to repel that assertion, he said mockingly, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? I mean, like, really? You think with just these few words, I'm going to become a believer? Seriously? And Paul replied, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. He said, I wish you, King Agrippa, with all of your wealth and all of your glory and all of your power, I wish you would become like me, except not a prisoner, except not in chains. I wish you would become a disciple of Jesus Christ, a citizen of the city of God. Paul didn't say, and I believe he didn't even think, how I wish I could become like you, King Agrippa. And yet how many believers, maybe some of us, in our hearts clamor after worldly riches and wealth and, and power and status as though they are the best things unlike Moses, who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the wealth of the world that was present in the palace of the most powerful king of that day. You know, the, the world esteems the strong and the mighty and the noble and the bold and despises the weak but God has a different perspective. He rejects the strong. He rejects the mighty. He rejects the wise, the elite, the powerful, the noble. And He chooses the low and the despised. And He makes of us a chosen race, Peter says, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own 
possession. We are not of Babylon. We are not of Egypt. We are of Jerusalem. We are God's own nation. We are God's own people in Christ. And I'm not certain what Pharaoh saw in the face and eyes of Jacob as he stood before him. I don't know if it was the old man's stature, his age, his humility, his other world gaze, focus, so to speak. But perhaps he sensed that this was a man who knew God. And I always wonder if in Pharaoh's own heart, deep in his heart, he thought to myself, he thought to himself, I can't really be a God. I'm, I'm too flawed a man. If he had any, even any sense of honesty, I'm too flawed a man to be a God, but here is a man who knows God, who is secure in the presence of the true God. But regardless, he seemed to understand that Jacob was an extraordinary man. A man who, unlike every other man, wasn't impressed by power and wealth and status and glory and human glory because he knew true power and wealth. What Pharaoh had was just temporary. It was fleeting. Someday passed on to others or maybe lost altogether maybe conquered by another king and vanquished and ruined forever. Yet it doesn't always seem like that, right? So Pharaoh, in his royal robes, standing in his palace, asked Jacob, basically, how old are you? And he said, the days of the years of my life are 130 years, and they've been difficult. I've been a sojourner, a wanderer. I've struggled. I don't know if he was complaining. I don't know, maybe just a little bit. But Jacob could speak literally, couldn't he, of his sojourning, of his wandering, because he had lived in many places. His home with Isaac originally, with Laban and Haran, and Shechem, Bethel, Bethlehem, and now Goshen. He was like a, a military family, always on the move, never settled, never rooted, never having a permanent dwelling. And the New Testament speaks about us, believers in Christ, disciples of Christ, the church, as sojourners and exiles in 1 Peter. And it speaks of life here as the time of your parochia. I don't expect any one of us will live 130 years. Maybe the children someday might live that long as lifespan seems to increase longer and longer. But regardless of how long you live, the time here is your parochia. You might have lived in one home, right? One county your whole life. And yet your sojourners, your exiles, your pilgrims. A dictionary definition of that is one who dwells in a foreign country. A temporary dweller not having a settled habitation in the place where he currently resides. And so therefore, when, when Jacob's sons, you may recall when they came before Pharaoh... They said, we've come to sojourn in your land. They themselves would never leave, those sons, because the family would live there for four centuries, a long, long time. Generation after generation after generation, yet we have come to sojourn, or just temporary dwellers in this foreign land. 
And the word used there in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Hebrew Old Testament, is that same root word, parakia. It means to dwell temporarily in a land as a stranger. They were just temporary guests. They were tenants in a land that wasn't their possession. And that's what we are. That's what we are. Because the world has fallen and corrupt, it's a, it should be a strange place to those who know the righteousness of Christ, those who walk with God. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And it should have the, the unfamiliar feel of a foreign country. When I travel, I'm very blessed to travel abroad into different nations, teaching pastors and leaders and you know how much I love it. And I'm not uncomfortable, even in the craziness of a place like India, with a sensual overload, it just blows you away. And yet there's not a moment when I'm not, <laughs> when, I, when I don't think that I'm home. It's like, I'm not in Kansas anymore. This is not my home. It's okay, I'm comfortable, but it ain't Georgia. This is not the U.S. I'm in a strange land in a strange culture. But the thing is, it's not strange to them. When they visit us, it's a strange place. See? The world should feel strange to the one who is in Christ. There should be an unpleasantness. Once there maybe was a pleasantness. Because once we were at home in this world before Christ, when we were like the world, when we were of the world, sinful and corrupt, but now we've been redeemed by Christ, by His blood, and we are no longer of the world, yet we are still in the world by God's grace, but no longer of the world. And if we are in the world but not of it, then we are strangers here. It's not our home. It's not our home. Think about Jesus. He came for a time. It wasn't His permanent dwelling. He was here for 30-some years. Some people think 33. Could have been a bit longer. It doesn't matter. It was just for a small season, a small time. He was never of the world. Jesus wasn't. But what does He say of us? He says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And so as Christ was for a time in the world but never of it, so are we His people. Which is why we are called holy. Which means it's not like the Roman Catholic definition of this is a sinless person. No, we are justified sinners, but we are set apart like the vessels used in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple. We are set apart unto Christ. We are set apart from worldly passions and lusts. We are people who belong to Christ. And as our fathers were sojourners and strangers and exiles, those who sought a homeland, those who looked for a better place, their own country, so do we, a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Even David, King David said, I am a sojourner with you like my fathers, a guest. That should be our testimony as well. And so as pilgrims, we don't live for the world. 
but we should be living for the reward that is ours in Christ because our hope is in the promise of God. We look with eyes to that which is unseen, not which was visible, not the bells and treasures of this world, of Pharaoh's palace. But Paul said the things which are unseen, those are the eternal things. We behold those. And see, those who believe they possess the world have their grip on something that's very transient, very slippery, very much easily lost. But we who claim no possession in this world have our grip on something secure, something eternal, something which we shall possess forever. That's the irony of the gospel. So we began by noticing the the contrast between Jacob and Pharaoh, and that dramatic, profound contrast existed because they were heads of two very different, distinctly different nations. But those nations aren't any longer Israel and Egypt, but the church comprised of people of all nations and the world, which is figuratively Babylon or Egypt. And the church is a pilgrim nation in this world seeking a homeland yet to come. We are those sojourners, and so we're not accepted by the cultural elites and the powerful, wealthy people. And as the church, as believers, we are one nation, one people. We are not Americans. We are not Chinese. We are not Africans. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. Paul said what? There's neither Jew nor Greek. Believers of every nation are one family, one people. We, we profess to believe in one holy Catholic or universal church, nation, people. One, one, one. And so the church is not and can never be a civic or social institution. If it were, Jacob could not have been greater than Pharaoh. We are the holy, peculiar people of God who are not seeking the world's acclaim, not seeking the world's approval, not seeking the world's riches or status or allegiances. For Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. It's incumbent upon us then to reflect only the kingdom of God as the church. In all things, we must show that we are not of the world, but we are exiles. We are in the world But as pilgrims, wanderers, we are not rooted here. We are people without a home. And we do that by giving, as someone said, a loving, consistent presentation of the truth found in Jesus Christ and of his call to a common heavenly citizenship. We are of Jacob. We are not of Pharaoh. So let us dismiss everything that is not of the world and follow Jesus with a singular focus on the promise of the hope to come, which is secure in Christ, knowing that someday we shall, in fact, be home. Amen. Oh, Lord our God, we thank you so much for this good news that we are no longer of Pharaoh, no longer of Egypt no longer of Babylon, and no longer condemned 
with those who are of the world. But we are of Jacob. We are of Christ. We are sons and daughters of the true King of kings and Lord of lords by grace through faith. Such news heartens us. Lord, let us repent of all worldliness and of pursuit and of pursuing worldly goals and passions. Let us have that singular mind, that singular focus on following Christ, seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. And the things we need will be given to us. Let us be content with what we have. Lord God, how great and awesome You are. And thank You that we have seen the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen.